Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA here on this Tuesday, September 13th. We've got a busy show today. We're going to be talking through yesterday's rally in the soybean market with Chris Robinson of Robinson Ag Marketing here in just a moment. And then in segment two, we're going to be talking with Caitlin Glover. SEC Chair Gary Gensler will be testifying later on this week in front of the Senate, and he's going to be bringing up that SEC climate disclosure rule. Caitlin's got some thoughts on that as it continues to move towards, uh, well, legal status, truly. In segment three, we're going to have a conversation with Dan Halstra, president CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. They currently have a trade delegation uh, in Japan right now, celebrating 45 years in that country, and they're trying to move more U.S. meat. We'll talk to him about what's happening there around the world. And then finally, in segment four today, Greg Solier, ag meteorologist, will be joining us. We're going to look at what to expect here as that harvest season gets underway. And well, harvest season getting underway was certainly top of mind for a lot of traders yesterday as the USDA released their World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates. Heading into it, a lot of folks were watching to see what the USDA was going to do to the corn market. But at the end of the day, it was the soybeans that stole the show. Chris Robinson, founder of Robinson Ag Marketing, joins me now. And Chris, I don't know if too many people were expecting to see a yield drop that big on soybeans yesterday. No, they weren't. In fact, we got kind of the opposite of what the trade was expecting. and That's why you had such a big repricing event. Um, the trade was looking for probably more acres and a bigger yield in um, soybeans, and they got the reverse. So that was the surprise, and surprise gave us that, you know, we had almost a dollar trading range, uh, really cleaned out a lot of uh, old highs, and we ran back up to uh, big resistance north of 15 bucks last night. Uh, we've backed off a little bit since then, but certainly caught a lot of people um, by surprise. It also helped pull up corn. If you look at the corn numbers, uh, aside from the uh, drop in acres, they, that was a surprise too. They dropped the acres, and they they um, they left the yield for corn as as what people were guessing for at 171 uh, and a half level. But certainly the the uh, change in soybeans it really makes the stock tight. Uh, they also had to adjust usage uh, so that the stocks don't get extremely tight. So the setup is there for. Um, you know, a supply issue, and the market has addressed it. Now we're going to have to see what happens, not only with the rest of the economy, with the whole inflation, but also uh, the South American crop is becoming more and more important now, um, given the tight stock we have in soybeans. It is. I mean, we're seeing all of these global factors come together, Chris, and I want to circle back around to soybeans from the USDA. Domestically, they dropped total carryout for 22-23 down to 200 million uh, bushels. But as you mentioned, they made some adjustments in demand. On the export front, USDA lowering demand. Does that seem legitimate to you, given the struggles we're seeing with this crop globally? Well, that's, that's exactly why we had such a uh, spike in prices. And, yeah, that's going to be the question, and we'll be probably arguing about that in the January report. But, yeah, the only way that they can make the numbers work was to cut that demand. They cut usage – excuse me, they cut the demand as well for ethanol, and uh, they, they cut the, the Chinese demand. So we'll see if, that, uh, if their predictions are accurate. But you hit the nail on the head there. That's going to be the – where the rubber meets the road. And um, at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's a glass half full, glass empty. Uh, it, uh, it's given uh, producers a boost up here. You know, we were really kind of on our heels back in July. Um, so between the corn and the beans, we've had very nice rallies. Um, we almost got above $7 uh, for December corn. And uh, also, too, if you, it's not too early to start looking out to 23 of next year. I know that sounds a little, you know, some guys are still dealing with what's going on right now, but really good new highs as well out in the, um, the 2023 corn. So uh, it's shaping up to, uh, to, to be something we're going to have to continue to watch. 
And Chris, I'm glad you mentioned looking out to 2023. We've heard conversations with growers that are buying that high price fertilizer in this market to get on there, make some sales in that December corn contract. November 23 beans, Chris, is there a similar rationale there to get some sales locked in? Or do you wait and see what happens with beans now that we've got a little tighter supply scenario? I would say, you know, take advantage of it as best you can. We're coaching up on $14, the contract high for that contract was 1450 so i don't mind you doing a little bit but i wouldn't get uh too aggressive this might be the year where you kind of want to sit back and say okay this is, i know my worst case scenario was that july low at around 12.25 here we're sitting at close to 14 dollars um see what happens i i would i'm in the opinion that if we're able to make a new highs if we're able to take out 14.50 between now and that uh, uh the beginning of the year next year uh, that trend is higher. So just like everything else, uh, we're taught in the investment business. If the trend is going your way, try and go with it. Uh, like I said, I don't have problems with people stepping out and doing a little bit because you're right. We've got high inputs. What you don't want to have happen is what happened back in 08, 09, where people locked in high inputs, and then we did see the price uh, correct lower. So uh, it may be a little bit of a tightrope there right now, but I think Moving ahead, if you look at these 23, we know what the worst case scenario is for the next uh, uh, three to four months. It's that 12.25 level. Uh, that that should probably be everybody's benchmark uh, as far as when they start planning for next year's prices. All right, 12.25 there in the bean contracts. I want to talk um, inflation briefly. You mentioned the sky high cost of inputs. The inflation data released from the government this morning makes it look like those prices aren't coming down anytime soon. This 8.3% inflation for the month of August, does it change money flow in the commodities, Chris? It, it actually does. I mean, you're probably going to get back to the situation where um, money flow is going to be coming back in the commodities as a defense against um, higher inflation. The interesting thing is, if you look at crude oil, crude oil, is, you know, we, we've had a nasty, depending on how you look at it, we went from 115 to this 86, 87 level. So it's given producers a chance to do something. Yeah, I'm looking at heating oil right now, the, um, uh, which is the diesel contract, right? Diesel contracts are actually a little bit lower this morning, um, kind of sitting there at, uh, at uh, relatively good levels. What you don't want to see is heating oil get back to where we were. 550, 575, that's the number two diesel. So if you're a producer, it may behoove you to, to take a little bit of upside protection or go ahead and get some of your inputs locked in here right now because um, that's the risk. The risk is we watch diesel go from 350, 360, where it is now, back north of that $5 level. Uh, if you're a producer, I would say, again, just like we talked about, kind of what's, what's your worst case scenario? You know, I would say draw the line in the sand at that that four cents area in the uh if you look at the heating oil futures that's going to be the big level moving ahead i think if we stay under that that'll be friendly for producers but if we start seeing prices move north of that um you may want to take some defensive measures all right, folks, keep that in mind as we get into fall and later on into winter. We've been talking to Chris Robinson, the founder of Robinson Ag Marketing. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. And folks, stick around when AOA returns. We're going to be talking with Caitlin Glover, the executive director of the Public Lands Council, about testimony coming later on this week in Washington, D.C. Stick around for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. This week, Dr. Chris Hostetler from the National Pork Board joined us, and we talked about how DDGs have become commonplace in the pork industry. You know, the renewable fuel standard came on board in 2007. Um, suddenly, corn was used for other things that it hadn't traditionally been used for, at least in, in uh, not in such great quantity. As a product of that, uh, distiller's grains became available to us uh, as a feedstuff. Um, I would no longer classify uh, dis dry distillers grains or solubles, BDGS, 
as a, a non-traditional feedstuff for pig, uh, for pigs. We commonly use it as part of our swine diet today. That was Dr. Chris Hostetler from the National Pork Board reflecting on the partnership between pork and corn. We'll be back Wednesday, October 5th with the next edition of the Monthly Grind. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. Hi, this is Jeff Schmidt. I'm your Chief Agri-District Manager for Eastern Nebraska. I will be at Husker Harvest Days on Lot 430 on September 13th through the 15th. We'll be talking with farmers and equipment dealers from all over the region about our customized product solutions that are designed to fit your operational needs. If you have any questions, give me a call, 308-440-8768, or check out our library of products at agra.chiefind.com. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues here today. And I tell you, conversations continue in Washington, D.C. about monitoring and measuring the amount of greenhouse gas emissions heading into the atmosphere. And these conversations are moving beyond just interested parties. There are now rules and regulations being proposed in order to mandate the collection of this data and importantly the sharing of this data up and down the supply chain. This has a lot of folks in the industry of agriculture confirmed and uh, excuse me concerned and one of those is Caitlin Glover. She's the executive director of the Public Lands Council and Caitlin this is an issue you've been uh, working on for some time since the SEC released their climate disclosure rule haven't you? You're exactly right. So uh, in addition to leading the Public Lands Council, I'm also the Executive Director of Government Affairs at, at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And I want to talk to you just a little bit this morning about why NCBA is so concerned. When the SEC uh, proposed a greenhouse gas reporting rule earlier this summer, uh, NCBA jumped in right away because one of the most concerning components of the rule uh, was not the requirement to disclose direct or energy or electricity emissions, which, you know, there are concerns there as well. But there was a third part that the SEC included in that rule, uh, disclosure of scope three or supply chain emissions. This, Mike, this, this would be a requirement for all companies that sell beef products, and there are quite a number of them out there. Uh, they would be required to disclose emissions data from anywhere through the cattle production supply chain. We have concerns uh, about data privacy, concerns about feasibility, uh, and we told the SEC that when we submitted comments in, in mid-June. Caitlin, I'd like to take a step back. This is a huge issue, and it's broken into a lot of different components. You mentioned the different scopes, and I was just hoping we could spend a little more time talking about what Scope 3 encompasses, the emissions that these companies will be retired, uh, required to maintain. How far up and down the supply chain will the, will the information go? Well, I, I think that's the question then, Mike. Scope 3 emissions would uh, would include everything from uh, from really that, that 
farm uh, to the table or that, that last destination of that beef product. That could include the, the diesel that you put in your pickup to, to bring feed or to go to a meeting uh, to bring feed to the farm. Uh, it, it could include everything from transport of those animals uh, in, in addition to all of the other normal business activities on the farm. This scope three really has no bounds uh, and, and so because there aren't limits, because the data collection is so immense, that's part of what would make it absolutely unfeasible for producers uh, in, in our industry. Now, when we're talking about the SEC's role, which I, I think is an important piece here, uh, it's, that, it's that scope, no pun intended, that, that's so concerning. SEC is is uh, in, manages investors, major investors on Wall Street. Uh, this this rule would require an agency with no ag expertise, no beef expertise, certainly, uh, to regulate and track on farm activities. Uh, this this proposed rule generated a significant amount of concern in in the beef industry, but across ag industries. And for all the reasons that, that, that I think are, are, are evident when you know what goes into producing food in this country. And Caitlin, I'm interested as you talk about that unfeasibility part, what is the practical feasibility of farm level greenhouse gas emissions measurement anyway? Is that something that a, that a farmer, a beef producer in this country could legitimately do today? Uh, so, so today, no. I mean, at, at this point, the, the challenge that we would have with a, a rule of this scope includes both direct and indirect greenhouse gas emissions not otherwise included in some other uh, other reporting requirement. And, and so, when we talk about the ability to to measure greenhouse gas emissions uh, uh, under this rule, we're, we're talking about a lot of modeling because the because the parameters are so loose. Now, the, the Security and Exchange Commission obviously thinks that this is a fairly straightforward proposal. I think we, we heard that from them uh, when they proposed the rule in June. Uh, but what I think we're hoping to hear from them uh, as a result of, of our work with them and, and our feedback to them is that these scope three emissions, uh, it's not possible to, to examine the full scope of, of what they're asking for. Uh, and it's, it's never responsible to implement a rule that, that isn't able uh, to, to be executed on. Now, one thing so, like, I just want to touch briefly is that, that we, we have the opportunity to hear from SEC uh, Chairman Gensler later this week when he testifies in the Senate. And so I think we're really looking for members from, from farm country, from, from ag country, uh, which really is the whole country, right, uh, to, to hold SEC accountable knowing that these, uh, these particular emissions uh, proposals are, are not feasible. Now, you mentioned this This rule was proposed back in June. There has been a tremendous outpouring of, I guess we could say, concern about this rule. Has SEC Chair Gensler discussed it since then? Have they, have they thought about making any changes to what has been proposed so far? Or is that the kind of thing we might learn more about on Thursday during his testimony? No, no, I do hope that we're going to learn a little bit more on Thursday during the chairman's testimony. But I think SEC has, has made pretty clear uh, in, in working with members of the ag community that they, uh, they, they realize that the scope or, or the breadth of what they included in scope three uh, is, is much wider than they, they ever intended um, or, or ever conceived. And, and so I think we've gotten some good signals from, from SEC that they understand some of the challenges. Uh, but what we would like to see is, is a much more definitive statement that scope three emissions, particularly as the SEC has, has requested uh, and proposed to collect them, um, are both outside of the scope of the agency's authority. They're not feasible. They would cause significant data privacy challenges and, and ultimately wouldn't tell producers, consumers, or regulators uh, anything more than they would already need to know uh, about uh, the, the food production supply chain. Uh, these these kind of data points uh, that are, are are already implemented in in on farm innovations, um, not something that the SEC needs to needs to be trying to force a data collection issue. Caitlin, if you would help us put together a roadmap for this climate disclosure rule going forward, we've got the testimony this week. The rule is still in its proposed status. What are some of the next benchmarks you're going to be watching for? 
So when you look at a proposed rule, a proposed rule is, is usually just the first step in this regulatory process. Uh, in this case, SEC proposed the rule, uh, comment, there was a, a public comment period uh, that they did extend, which I think is a signal that SEC um, understands that, that what they were, were asking was, was, was maybe not what they had intended. Uh, NCBA and, and many others, as you indicated, submitted comments. Um, the, the chairman is testifying before the banking committee on, on a host of issues, uh, but I expect this, this greenhouse gas disclosure rule will, will be one of them. Now, th this testimony is uh, one in a number of, of uh, public engagements and meetings that, that Chairman Gensler will have, but the next step in that regulatory process will be, will be a final rule. Uh, I expect, given the, the extent of the comments that uh, that, that NCBA and others uh, in, in the community provided, I do expect that, that the agency will take quite a bit of time uh, to go through those rules. And so uh, on the outside, uh, we, we could be looking at uh, next June or July for a final rule. Certainly, I know that, that we and many others are hoping that any sort of final rule will look much different uh, than what the SEC put forward. It's also possible Indeed. that the SEC may change course entirely. Uh, and so I think we're looking for uh, what, what we hope on Thursday to be some enlightening testimony. All right. We'll have that testimony on Thursday. Producers, you just heard, Caitlin, we've got a year before this thing comes to fruition. It's a year to be engaged. It's a year to see how this could impact your bottom line. And well, the concerns are it, it could have a large impact. Caitlin, while I've got you, this past week, we saw Senator Thune and Senator Cinema introduce the Livestock Regulatory Protection Act designed to help protect against EPA measurement of greenhouse gases. Would it have any bearing on this SEC climate rule if it were to pass? So the, the, that's a great question, Mike. And, and any time that we see uh, the EPA or SEC uh, require uh, additional disclosure of greenhouse gas emissions, that's another public data point and uh, data set for, for the government to draw on. And, and, and so there is some interaction here. Uh, if the EPA requires disclosure, uh, which, which we, we, we don't want them to do, and, and Senator Thune and Senator Cinema have, have recognized, uh, recognized the priorities for our industry, so we thank them. Um, but we, if, if, we, if producers were to disclose that kind of data set, that certainly could be a data set uh, that the SEC, the EPA, or, or other agencies could draw from. At this point, our priority, Mike, is to make sure that, that our producers are able to implement the innovative practices on farm, on ranch, for the benefit of the environment and for the industry. That's what it's all about, folks. We've been talking to Caitlin Glover, the Executive Director at the Public Lands Council and at NCBA. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us here on AOA. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we're going to be talking with Dan Halstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. He joins the show from Japan. Stick around for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. This week, Dr. Chris Hostetler from the National Pork Board joined us, and we talked about how DDGs have become commonplace in the pork industry. You know, the renewable fuel standard came on board in 2007. Um, suddenly, corn was used for other things that it hadn't traditionally been used for, at least in, in uh, not in such great quantity. As a product of that, uh, distiller's grains became available to us uh, as a feedstuff. Um, I would no longer classify uh, dis dried distiller's grains or solubles, DDGS, as a, a non-traditional feedstuff for pig, uh, for pigs. We commonly use it as part of our swine diet today. That was Dr. Chris Hostetler from the National Pork Board reflecting on the partnership between pork and corn. We'll be back Wednesday, October 5th with the next edition of the Monthly Grind. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Let's take a look at what's happening here in the market trade. The biggest thing going in grains and oilseeds right now is that 
Trade is relatively mixed. Same goes for the livestock trade. USDA shocked the trade yesterday by cutting harvested corn acreage by 1 million on Monday, cutting 600,000 from soybean harvested acreage. Their corn yield cut matched trade expectations at 172.5 bushels an acre, but USDA's 50.5 bushel per acre soybean yield, that was below the most bullish trade estimate. That is uh, something that definitely moved the soybean market yesterday. Today, though, things are fairly quiet. Might be some weight from new consumer data that is out. The headline consumer price index rose 0.1% month-on-month in August after being flat in July. Analysts were expecting a 0.1% decline in August, though. CPI rose 8.3% year-on-year in August, down from 8.5% in July, but above the analyst expectations of 8.1%. Now, more significantly, the core CPI that excludes the more volatile food and energy sectors rose 0.6% month-on-month in August, which doubled analyst expectations. That would remain unchanged at 0.3%. The core CPI rose 6.3% year-on-year in August, up from 5.9% the previous month and above analyst expectations of 6.1%. Now, core inflation continues to rise, and that's weighing on the stock market here as we work through Tuesday action with the Dow Jones, NASDAQ, and S&P under heavy pressure working through the trading day. And that, again, could be a weight here on the food and energy commodities as we work through our day. Looking at the U.S. dollar index as well, that is up slightly, up around 109.25 here as we work through the day. So a slight increase there could also be a weight on the commodity trade here today. Also watching the ongoing potential for a rail strike and the weight that that could have on the market trade. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen, here on this Tuesday, September 13th. You know, we look around the world, there are a lot of things that give us pause and and make us get a little nervous. Things have changed a lot over the past two years, but there is tremendous amounts of opportunity out there, and we're seeing that in U.S. meat exports. Joining me now is Dan Halstrom. He's the president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. He joins me from Japan, where they are preparing to celebrate the 45th anniversary of USM in that country. Dan, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure, Mike. Anytime. Let's talk about how you are going to celebrate 45 years in Japan. Dan, what's on tap for this week at uh, USMEF? Well, we have a full uh, schedule with some uh, few leaders, uh, industry leaders of our organization are with us. Um, But it really culminates in the Friday event, which is a a seminar and uh, reception of sorts. Uh, I say of sorts because we're still coming out of COVID here, so it's a bit restricted, but uh, we're expecting to have 200 plus folks here on uh, Friday afternoon uh, uh, celebrating the 45th anniversary, but uh, really focused on, uh, you know, back in person here in the U.S. Or I should say in Japan, as you know, in the U.S., we've been back in person for a while, but uh, it's relatively new here in Japan. So getting everyone back together in person, uh, is going to be exciting and it just happens to coincide with the celebration of 45 years here in the, in the great uh, country of Japan. Well, that is good to hear, Dan. And as you think back over that past 45 years, how has the meat export game from the United States into Japan changed? 
Well, I think uh, I think it's a testament to the fact that uh, these biz- these these markets are not built overnight. Uh, it's taken years and, and decades, literally, of uh, of effort and work and investment, uh, financial, but more importantly, the investment of time to develop these markets. And uh, and I would say that one of the most reliable markets in the world now is Japan, and it's a result of. Uh, of 50 plus years of, of work by the industry, uh, 45 of which we've had a, a an office here of developing those relationships to where it is a very reliable, dependable market. And uh, I'd say that's the biggest thing that uh, we've seen. That's the reason we're we're talking about four billion plus in sales between beef and pork last year. And uh, I think that's pretty exciting stuff. That is exciting. And as Japan and the rest of Southeast Asia, Dan, continues to come out of COVID, are, are you still optimistic those those export uh, dollars could increase throughout the year? Yeah, I think um, on the beef side, we're, we're definitely looking at uh, a global uh, a record, another record. We're on a $1 billion a month pace for exports on beef, and uh, we see that continuing and setting a new record this year. The, the pork side is... Uh, is still doing pretty well considering that China is down and we do see uh, uh, some some ground being made up in the last uh, four months or five months of the year uh, for pork as well. So yeah, overall, considering all the headwinds out there, demand is still pretty good and uh, and we're and we're pretty optimistic going forward. Well, let's talk about some of those headwinds, Dan. We've got one coming up. We've talked about it a lot on the program. Potential rail strike coming up this weekend across the country. Are you hearing from exporters already about that issue? No, oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, we're we're struggling. We've been struggling for the last year or more uh, just with international supply chain logistics. Now, the, the one everyone hears about is the West Coast port issue that, that's maybe a bit better from where it was, but still an issue. Uh, but but now it's kind of expanded to, to all the major ports, including the Gulf ports as well as the East Coast. Uh, cold storages are full at all these ports, and while the service might be a bit improved, availability of containers might be a bit improved, uh, we're still behind on getting cargo out. So if something were to happen this weekend with the rail, the, the threatened rail strike, that would just simply compound the inland part of it, uh, which is all part of the uh, the same situation. So yeah, that, that would not be good news to say the least. Dan, the rail strike will happen or won't happen. It's a little bit out of our control, but the port issues, we've been making substantial investments in the ports throughout the COVID uh, crisis. Are, are they starting to pay off? Do you hear from exporters? Well, I think we're seeing some improvement. It depends on the port. It depends on the situation. But uh, keep in mind, we still have a labor contract that's pending and, and being negotiated as we speak uh, on the West Coast. Uh, it's it's uh, we're, The old contract has already expired, but it typically takes several months to negotiate these things when they do renew. And uh, hopefully that can be uh, brought to conclusion without any kind of disruption, because that would really be... Uh, that would set us back a lot if we were to have some sort of a disruption with the labor contract. So, but to answer your question, yes, I think we've seen some signs of uh, improvement. Uh, the, the the crazy volatility of the freight rates has stabilized at, at a higher level, but nonetheless, it's stabilized. So that's a positive because uh, for a while there, you know, six months, three to six months ago, we had such a variance in freight rates, it was hard for exporters to even... Uh, when they did book cargo, uh, they didn't know what it was really going to be billed at because that's how volatile it was. So that has improved. All right. Well, supply chains are one concern, Dan. Inflation is another. We're seeing prices rise around the globe. Is American meat staying competitive in these foreign markets? Well, um, it is. But uh, to your point, there's a lot of warning signs. Uh, inflation is strong. Inputs uh, as well as the meat itself. Uh, you know, labor continues to be an issue. Uh, and, and now, most recently, in the last uh, 60 days especially, we've seen um, currency, uh, the U.S. dollar strengthen against some of our uh, uh, key export currencies, the Japanese yen, the South Korean yuan in particular. So uh, all that does is make our product more expensive on the ground and in, in local currency terms. So add another piece of wood to the fire in terms of uh, some of these headwinds and uh, you know, that's a bit concerning as well. So, yeah, the, the real question here is uh, at what point does disposable income in some of these markets become constrained and, and we start to see the impact in demand? 
Uh, honestly, I don't think we've seen it yet, but uh, certainly everyone is watching it closely and, and, and very concerned. It's not a question of if, but when. It is indeed. And Dan, of course, we continue to have gl discussions globally on policy with regard to trade. Are you hearing any conversations there that, that have you optimistic about growth in U.S. meat exports? Well, yeah, I think there's some good things going on. You, you've got the uh, the economic framework in, in Southeast Asia, the IPEF. Uh, you know, the these are positives. It's not a free trade agreement per se, but uh, there is an effort to uh, uh, expand relationships with some of those key countries. So I think those are some positives. Um, you know, that that would be one one good example. And then we've got some current agreements already in place where we're really making uh, some headway. And I'll give you a good example. Uh, we've talked a lot about pork into Colombia. Uh, that's been well established over the last five or six years, the growth there. But but what we don't talk about a lot is the gains on beef into Colombia. And, of course, we have a free trade agreement there that benefits both species. And, uh, you know, to see to see the beef side really uh, take advantage of uh, of this uh, situation and we see the growth uh, into a place like Colombia with beef uh, is encouraging. So that's a good example of some areas where an existing trade agreement is maybe didn't pay off initially for beef, but it is now. And Dan, thinking back here, I believe tail end of last year, we saw approval for U.S. pork into India. Has there been any movement on actually getting shipments there on the ground? No, it's been slow in coming. And, and that's another area we're working on. We're trying to, um, to get some initial um, shipments in there, uh, some samples, so to speak. Uh, and we were actually coordinating with the U.S. Embassy, the government, FAS in India, on that. And it's been a little slower than we anticipated, but it is an opportunity we feel. All right, Dan. So those are the headwinds. Those are the challenges facing meat exporters. They are legion, but the opportunity is out there. As you look around the globe, Dan, what regions really stand out to you as, as potential growth areas here remaining in 2022? Well, I think, um, I think Asia, uh, Japan and Korea in particular, and uh, as you had alluded to earlier, we're actually in Japan and, uh, and the reality is that food service is a fraction of what it was. Even though things are reopening as of April, it really uh, the last declaration was lifted in both Japan and Korea. But that's only a few months ago. And there's a lot of signs of, of a rebound potential uh, on both beef and pork into the food service sector. So we see a rebound in both Japan and Korea potentially uh, on food service, which will add to some of that momentum that we've already had on retail and some of the other products. So that's one area of the world that, that looks optimistic. You know, I think we continued growth. Um, you know, we're seeing just food service booming in uh, Latin America. Uh, in the Caribbean, uh, and we see the last part of the year um, uh, continuing the same uh, uh, good trends that we've seen in the first part of the year uh, into that region as well. Dan, you mentioned Asia, and of course, we have seen tensions between the United States and China rising over this past year. Are there any concerns you have about China maybe backing away from the U.S. meat export business or import business in their case? Well, uh, there's always that possibility because, you know, politically, you know, there, there are certain things that, that could happen that could trump the actual business, so to speak. But so far, the business has been good. I mean, uh, on a beef side, we're setting records. Uh, we, we had a in the month of uh, July, we were up 31 uh, percent again at 23,000 tons, up 46 percent for the year. So things are going quite well on a beef side. And uh uh, you always wonder when it could slow down, um, but so far the business is good. And keep in mind, we don't really compete against any domestic production on beef in China. Uh, the the high quality grain fed beef in the U.S. is unique in that aspect, which I think, to some extent, maybe protects us from any kind of uh, you know uh, political type things that might happen. So that could benefit the U.S. as well. We think it will to some extent. Uh, the last part of the year. So, uh, yeah, always concerns, but from a demand standpoint, uh, we, we actually are forecasting some good numbers for the last part of the year right now. Well, that is good to hear and good news to a lot of American protein producers. Dan Halstrom, president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, thanks for joining us today. Yep, thank you so much, Mike. And folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA coming up after this.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner too. Through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Joining me today is Mark Hers, Technical Product Specialist with CHS. We're going to talk best practices for fall fertility management. Mark, what's the first step in fall fertility management? Well, the first step, and probably the most important step, is to collect accurate and meaningful data. This should include soil tests, could include yield maps, soil maps, just any layers of information that you have that you can analyze and then uh, put together to make uh, some fertility plans. Fall application, Mark, what nutrients should farmers consider? A couple of good candidates would be phosphorus and potassium. Both of those are relatively immobile in the soil. So if we place them out there this fall, they should stay put until next spring and not have to worry about anything. Additionally, uh, several of the micronutrients are similar in that they uh, pretty immobile in the soil and, and we can do that fall application and be just fine for spring. Mark, looking ahead to next year, is there anything farmers can or should do to prep their fields for nutrient uptake ahead of spring? Give a lot of thought to placement. You got lots of different ways to place that fertilizer on the soil surface, under the surface, banded, uh, in furrow, you just lots of choices. So when you consider all those things, you got to keep in mind, how can I be most efficient with my fertilizer? So placement plays a role in that. Other things can too. You know, there's a lot of technologies, VRT, that can help you be efficient with it. Your retail supply teams are usually pretty good at helping you with these technologies and getting the most bang for your buck out of the fertilizer. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today, folks. That's Mark Hers, Technical Product Specialist with CHS. Thank you. And thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Hi, I'm Brent Whitefoot, your Chief Agri-District Manager for Western Nebraska. I'll be at Husker Harvest Days, Lot 430, on September 13th through the 15th, talking with farmers and equipment dealers from all over the region about our customized product solutions designed to fit your operational needs. Our grain storage, handling, and conditioning products are designed to last and help you save time and money every step of the way. Have questions? Give me a call at 308-440-4737 or check us out at agra.chiefind.com. 
The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks so much for joining us here on AOA Today. Certainly do appreciate it. We're going to talk weather here with meteorologist Greg Solier in just a moment. But before we do, we're also digging into that inflation report that came out this morning from the Labor Department. One of, or I should say, two key metrics were noted as driving up inflation for this last period. Those two are rents. We saw the rent inflation jump to the highest level we have seen since 1991. It was up 0.7% of a percent here uh, August to August, looking back month or year over year, we also saw similar trends play out in energy, specifically U.S. electricity bills. August electricity bills for U.S. consumers jumped the most since 1981 last month. They climbed 15.8%. Folks, we have talked on this program about the issues coming with energy. And even though we saw gasoline and crude oil prices and diesel prices come down in that same time period, overall expenses on energy climbed because that electricity cost jumped so much. It is going to be a challenge, I think, as we head into winter to keep track of this volatility, and it is certainly going to impact the way money moves around the global financial system. So we'll keep talking about inflation, no doubt, as it continues on into the future. And we'll also continue talking about weather, particularly this time of year, as we are waiting for these crops to finish their maturity and come out with the combine. Joining us now to look ahead to harvest is meteorologist Greg Solier. He is our meteorologist on this week on in agribusiness. And Greg, thanks for joining us today. Today across the heartland. Indeed it is, Greg. Let's talk a little bit about what you're looking at in this week ahead. Saw that rainfall this past weekend. Are you expecting dryness across most, most of the Corn Belt this week? Uh, yes, a drier weather picture is anticipated. Still got this very photogenic weather system spinning its wheels over the eastern Corn Belt out of Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio. Still some spits of rain and uh, oh, some damp grounds and uh, very wet grounds for that matter. Parts of southern Wisconsin, northern Illinois, three to six inches of rain over the past weekend and even an inch or two as far south as uh, sections of central Illinois. Drought easing, but certainly harvest delaying and uh, crop maturation delaying as well. But you get out west of the Mississippi, a whole different uh, story. Uh, matter of fact, uh, already a couple of test runs have been noted into sections of the eastern core, but before the rains and more so despite, you know, dryness and drought. I'm sure that's going to keep yields down substantially so, but a good looking weather picture there all the way to just about the divide. And matter of fact, those folks at Husker Harvest Days today and tomorrow, 92 to 94 degree highs anticipated and you have to go all the way along and west of the divide to see uh, actually some remnant tropical moisture coming on down uh, with the remnants of K had 86 mile an hour winds in Phoenix because of the remnants from K that hurricane came in off the Pacific would you believe so that's the way we see it here in the shorter term and in the longer range uh, here the next five to seven days it'll be our friends of course Thunder Bay the southern areas of Manitoba and Ontario will see the biggest rains maybe through the arrowhead of Minnesota and the north end of the Red River Valley there could be an inch to maybe three or four inches worth of rain the next five to seven days, particularly over the weekend and into next week. In the shorter term of it, uh, where things are ready to go, I'd go out and get it in those northernmost areas and what should otherwise be, we think, uh, pretty optimistic and pretty favorable uh, harvest weather pattern across much of the heartland, the Corn Belt, and back into the Plain States areas. Again, the caveat to that, I'm sure there'll be some disappointment where the dryness and drought have been the story here uh, for months gone by. 
Greg, those tropical remnants down in the southwest hitting Phoenix and Arizona, any chance those can make their way eastward over the Rockies and provide some rain there in the southern plains? Uh, well, at least I don't think in the southern plains. Everything, the jet stream pattern, and by the time we get into uh, the weekend, there are indications of a pretty broad, big, upper air low. Uh, we talked about this on the past weekend's edition of This Week in Agribusiness, kind of dropping its way into the Pacific Northwest, setting up shop over northern California, so there's a better likelihood of getting some organized moisture there, drought easing, but maybe mudslide potential. But at the same time, for some of these dry, drought-ridden areas of Montana, what's left of it, uh, parts of the Canadian Prairie, the northern plains, uppermost regions of the Midwest, uh, yeah, it gets in the way of harvest, uh, but this is the time of the year you wanted to get that recharge uh, process going. It's a give and take, a back and forth. Uh, scenario, a balancing effect, if you will, but it uh, looks like there'll be wetter tendencies up there over the weekend and into next week. It probably won't be until sometime mid or late next week when we get into maybe some organized rains over the central and southern plains. And yeah, we've kind of really flipped uh, soil moisture levels where, you know, we had a couple of weeks ago some devastating heavy rains at the south end of South Texas. Uh, cotton, they're 53% short and very short in uh, regards to topsoil moisture. But then you go northward up across North Dakota, 83% short and very short. So we've kind of juxtapositioned some of the dryness and drought-related issues. But central and southern areas, more or less garden variety, nothing substantial, nothing to end uh, or even put a substantial drought improvement category in. But there will be some moisture ahead uh, late next week in some of those central and southern Plain States areas. And then uh, towards the following weekend, out seven to 10 days before we get anything going over the rest of the Corn Belt. All right, Greg. Well, that drought monitor will be coming out on Thursday. And thinking back to this past weekend, slow moving, fairly widespread rain event. Do you expect to see any categorical improvements in the drought monitor across the Corn Belt? Uh, yeah, there should be in the parts of central Illinois. There have been some small areas that have been basically missed out on some of the organized rains, but they're holding their own there. I think southern Wisconsin, northern Illinois, there ought to be substantial drought improvement coming at a price a little bit with maybe some standing water in the fields as well as sections of Michigan. And if we go farther east into the northeast of New England, I know we don't talk a lot about ag out there, but parts of uh, Maine and southern New England and in the northeast have had a pretty substantial drought weather pattern uh, this summertime season as well. So improvement there and probably some worsening because of some of this low to mid 90 degree heat coming back into the plains and far west and southwestern Corn Belt get great for moisture reduction and dry down. Not so great uh, with regard to dryness or drought. But again, some indication that parts of the West, the Northern Plains, Southern Canadian Prairie, will see at least some uh, modest improvement to any dryness and drought and get some additional recharge going. Again, harvest delays, but at the same time, you want to start to get that moisture pattern going this time of the year. Absolutely. Build that up, folks. You can hear Greg's forecast both in the week ahead and long term each weekend on This Week in Agribusiness. Greg Solier, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, my friend. Have a great day. And folks, we wish the same to all of you. Hope you have a fantastic day. Come right back. Join us tomorrow. We'll dig more into the inflation results and we'll talk about what's driving the markets on Wednesday's AOA. Have a great night, everybody. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. This week, Dr. Chris Hostetler from the National Pork Board joined us, and we talked about how DDGs have become commonplace in the pork industry. You know, the renewable fuel standard came on board in 2007. Um, suddenly, corn was used for other things that it hadn't traditionally been used for, at least in, in uh, not in such great quantity. As a product of that, uh, distiller's grains became available to us uh, as a feedstuff. Um, I would no longer classify uh, dis dried distiller's grains or solubles, DDGS, as a, a non-traditional feedstuff for pig, uh, for pigs. We commonly use it as part of our swine diet today. That was Dr. Chris Hostetler from the National Pork Board reflecting on the partnership between pork and corn. We'll be back Wednesday, October 5th with the next edition of the Monthly Grind.